Welcome to another week on Let's Get Real with Coach Menachem Show, Sunday Nights. Originally a Zoom interactive platform where we discuss real life scenarios with real live people. Hi everybody, welcome here to tonight's amazing program, amazing sheer. And with Zoycha, that was close to everybody. It's like Brighter what's here from Eretz Yisrael. So nice and early in the morning. Seeking to come join us. We appreciate it. Um, again, tonight's share is share 111 with Coach Menachem Berenfeld. And uh, again, I always start every week thanking everybody for all the people that uh, promote this program. It's a self-promoted program. People tell people about it. They post it on their WhatsApp statuses. They email it to their friends. And um, Shem, it's, it's where I'm growing. It's getting better and better, and we really appreciate that. And as I say, every week we get together here, speak through things, and to really get clarity, get chizik. This is uh, the last year before Tisha B'Av, so let's really, uh, three weeks, that's the nine days, let's really get some clarity. Again, if anybody wants to join, to get every Sunday the flyers, you can WhatsApp me personally at 848-525-0066. Again, that's 848-525-0066. And I'll send you every Sunday the flyer for that share. Post it, let people know about it, people join. You can go to Menachem Berenfeld's website, menachemberenfeld.com. You can sign up every week. He sends out emails for um, with, the, with the recaps of the Shiurim and who's coming on. You can send in your questions. Please join. For those who are watching the replay of this on YouTube, please click on the subscribe button and the like button. And uh, every Sunday, Menachem will upload the Shir Monday, 2.32 a.m. You can get to watch it and get to hear it and be mechazek. Again, I want to start off thanking all our advertising sponsors here who promote us every week. First, the Lakewood Scoop here in Lakewood for promoting us in Lakewood. Special thank you to Rabbi and Yanif of Kazakh for promoting us on the Kazakh channels. Special thank you to Ariel and Ellie and Ariel from Five Town Central. A special thank you for Tachayla Kaufman, Shulsom from JCN, the Jewish Content Network, for always promoting us on all the Jewish digital networks. The, OK uh, the Coach Menachem Show is collaborating with OK Clarity to bring you greater health and wellness in the Jewish community around the globe. OK Clarity online platform is mental health and support of the Jewish community. OKClarity.com, you find the best therapists, coaches, nutritionists, and engage in forums. Menachem will email the share. I have to share with a lot of information. It'll be there, Mr. Shem. Hold on one second. Hold on one second. Wait one sec. Okay, so again, if anybody who's here the first time Sunday nights, every Sunday night at 9.30 p.m. we have a sheer, it's some tremendous different topics. We discuss many things. We have Rabbonin, therapists, we have the best of the best tonight. We brought out the guns tonight. So Metshem tonight should be unbelievable. Metshem next Sunday, see the Mashiach will be here, or there'll be Tisha above. So either way, there won't be a shear. So the next Sunday, August 7th, there'll be no shear. The following week, August 14th, will be Metshem Rabdavi Capital from Eretz Yisrael, also from Arsameach. And he's discussing the topic that he wrote many, many books on. We titled it My Husband, My King, My Wife, My Queen. He had, we, wrote, we wrote a book for men, a book for women. And uh, so we're going to put it together and taking our marriages to the next level. It should be a very deep and meaningful program. I think everybody could use that. So please join Metshem August 14th, be part of it. Tonight we have the schuss and the honor of having the most brilliant minds in Kalei Israel today. Yusuf Berkowitz from Arsameh, Metshem with Mechazik, Brightowitz. And Metshem with Mechazik's own tonight. Hopefully we'll be able to Mechazik thousands and thousands of people Metshem, that could be here tonight and the tens of thousands that will hear it afterwards. And uh, we'll start off with the Gematria, the Menachem, and then Rebbe Brightus. Tonight's share is 111. So me and Arno Echid came out with two Gematrias. Number one for 111 came out, Echad Aleph. Hashem is literally Echad, one. Another, another one, Kaveh, is Gematria 111. So Kaveh, Hashem, Chazak, Yom Tzabeth, Hashem, Hashem, 
the word Kavi means to be Mechadik self, much more after tonight's show, we'll get more chizik, we'll be able to strengthen ourselves and to really take it to the next level. We're going to start off with Coach Menachem, Coach Menachem, open it up. What are we doing here tonight? Let's go. Thank you very much. I want to welcome everyone for coming tonight. Baruch Hashem, we're doing tonight number 111. It's a lot of Siyat and Shmaya. And I want to thank you, Rabbi Breidowitz, for giving us some of your time. And uh, I know I got a lot of feedback that people love the question and answers that you do. And Amit Shem in the, in the email will send out the, the podcast where they can listen more. But tonight, we are in the three weeks, and it's a few days before Tisha B'Av, a time to slow down and to reflect, to see where we are. Now, whether you're in Israel or in America, but we're all in Gullis. And this is a time that many, uh, sometimes when you think about it, you can come up with certain questions. What's going on along Gullis? In Bechlal, you know, in general, and sometimes you think about your own life, which people go through a lot of times. They go through sorrows, painful things, a lot of challenges, and uh, we could have questions. So tonight's topic: Why bad things happen to righteous people? The truth is, we need to redefine. First of all, how do we know if we're righteous? Or the questions that you have: How do we know what's righteous? And what is bad things? So we could talk about it. But the truth is, most of us, we live in this world. We try to figure things out the way we see it. We want to understand the way our eyes see it, with the way we understand. And sometimes it's hard. We have questions. And in our eyes, righteous people go through so many tsars. And we could sometimes think, what does Hashem want? What's going on? And this is really a fundamental question in, in Yiddishkeit. In, in just to know, sometimes people think I'm doing the right thing and look what's happening. So the question is really, this question Moshe Rabbeinu asked Hashem already. And it's not, it's a, the question is if we're allowed to ask this question and how to ask this question. Because at the end of the day, we need to understand and to figure out how it works for us, even though we know that not always can we have the answer, but to understand there are many people that with this question, they, they left the path of Yiddishkeit because of this question. It was too hard, the pain, and they couldn't understand it. And we can't um, judge anybody, but you know, that's, that's the topic tonight. Mitchum will get some clarity to help us how to ask the question and how to understand how to give us the physics to be able to continue, even though there are people who at the end of the day are going through real huge challenges and are trying to understand. So Mitchum Shahabashmaya, thank you, Rabbi Yitzhak Bradowitz, to be, be with us tonight and to give us some physic clarity and a little bit of understanding. A beautiful opening. Um, again, let's overview tonight's share. Tonight's share, we're going to be discussing the story of Eve a little bit, give us a general context of what we're talking about. And of course, the, the powerful topic is why do good things happen, why do bad things happen to good people, and why do the righteous suffer? Sadiq Um Tonight's share is sponsored by Moistis Hatoya Lindelinden, this week's sponsor. They're doing a big raffle to build up the Linden community over here. They're starting a beautiful Toyota community in Jersey over here. 
they're raffling off a big house. So um, it's definitely worth to join. Linda, New Jersey, you could upgrade to, to a mansion, <laughs> 3,000 square feet, and there's a whole link over here to, to join. We'll put it in the chat. Menachem will email it out. Try to join. Build up uh, Linda, New Jersey. It's going to be a beautiful community. And Menachem will send the link for the raffle. Everybody should try to join. Rabbi Breitowitz, I'm going to read your bio, and then the floor is yours, okay? I was Makatsarit. I hope you might call me, okay? Because it's way too long. But I tried my best. Rabbi, Rabbi Yitzhak Breitowitz. Scope of knowledge, brilliance, as well as uniquely ability to grasp complicated material and communicate it clearly to others is legendary. Rabbi Bradertz received his bachelor's from arts from John Hopkins University and obtained Smith from the Israel Rabbinical College. He graduated magna cum from Harvard Law School and shortly after became a rub of Silver Spring Woodside Shul in Silver Spring, Maryland. While maintaining the status of attended professor at the University of Maryland School of Law, he lectured extensively Throughout the U.S. and in Israel, in medical, business, family ethics, he published numerous articles on bankruptcy, commercial law, medical ethics, and Jewish law. Rabbi Breitertz and his wife currently live in Israel, and Zerav Arsameah, Yushalayim, he published widely in Jewish areas of laws and ethics. Rabbi Breitertz, gracious you for coming, and it's just to have you here. The floor is yours. Thank you very much. Uh, it's a great honor to be here. It's a little early for me, uh, but Baruch Hashem, I think the subject is important enough that it was worthwhile uh, giving up a little bit of uh, sleep. Uh, you know, it's been said, you know, I, I teach at Arsameach, obviously, and uh, we deal with all sorts of hashkafa questions. How do you know there's a God? How do you know God gave the Torah? But to me, by far, the most difficult question, not just for the Bali Tshuva, but for me, is how do we understand the idea that good, righteous people seem to be suffering in this world. And as Coach Menachem said, uh, we're in good company to ask this question because indeed this is exactly what Moshe Rabbeinu asked HaKadosh Baruch Hareini na es show me your glory, or es another passage says, meaning the Gemara in Brachos says, why is it that righteous people suffer and evildoers prosper? And in reality, HaKadosh Baruch Hu did not give him an answer. HaKadosh Baruch Hu said, I make my choices, you're not going to understand. So in a sense, I could just stop here. Because if Moshe Rabbeinu, the greatest of the Nevi'im who ever lived, asked Hashem, Panim El Panim, to explain to him what is going on. And Hashem basically said, if you remember, Hashem passed by him and he said, you will see me from the back. You will not see me from the front. And the Chassam Seifer is Mazber. You'll never understand it as it's happening. Maybe at the end, when all is said done, maybe it'll make sense. When Mashiach comes, it should be So what is it that I could possibly add that if Moshe Rabbeinu was not able to to understand. But it is interesting. We do have one book in Tanakh that deals explicitly with this theme. And this is the very famous book, but very rarely studied book, the Davoneno, and that is the book of Eov, which deals explicitly with the notion of a righteous man who suffers. Now, it's interesting. There's many, many opinions in the Gemara. Who was Eov? When did he live? And there's even an opinion that Eev is Lohaya Nifra. There never was uh, a man Eev. It's a fictional novel. And according to one view, the fictional novel was written by, by no other than Moshe Rabbeinu himself. 
So the way I understand it, I don't have a clear source for this, but the way I reconstruct it is that after Moshe Rabbeinu tried to get a direct answer from Hashem, and Moshe Rabbeinu didn't get a direct answer from Hashem, Moshe Rabbeinu tried to work out the sugya by writing the story of Eov through Ruach HaKodesh to try to get to such a, an understanding. But again, for our purposes, it's not really important if Eov is an actual person or Eov is a paradigm of the human experience because in many, many ways, Eov is the story of every man with the capital E because uh, Eov is not even identifiably Jewish because Eov is a human story. It is Lapdafka, a Jewish story. That is why although Eov is described as Yirei Elohim, one who fears God, there is no direct reference to Torah mitzvos or the Pratim of Yiddishkeit because this is a story about the human condition. And it's been well said that the question of theodicy as the fancy term, why do righteous people suffer, is the single biggest question for the one who believes in God. Because if, if our notion of the Rebbeinah Shalaylam is that he's compassionate, but he's also just, but he's fair and he's good, then how could all of these things happen? What is going on? And that is what the book of Eev grapples with, in which there seems to be a righteous man who, who fears God, takes care of people, uh, and uh, unbeknownst to him, when God says to his heavenly courts that, have you ever seen such a righteous man as Eev? And the Satan, who, by the way, is not a fallen angel, the Satan is part of God's heavenly court. He's like the prosecutor. He's like the devil's advocate. He simply says, oh, yeah? Well, of course Eev is righteous because uh, he gets a good deal out of it. I would also be righteous if I get if I get wealth and respect and family. Let me start taking things away and then we'll see what a righteous man he is. And God agrees to what looks like an unconscionable bet at the expense of a human being. Now, again, we as the readers know of this bet. He doesn't know about it. And all of a sudden, things start happening. He loses his wealth, he loses his children, he loses his health, he has loathsome diseases. The one thing God did not take from him was his wife, because that would have been the same as death. And God did not take from him his friends, because either without friends, a person has no life. Because once again, you couldn't allow Eve to die, because that would have meant the experiment couldn't be carried out. The whole experiment was to see how he would respond to something. And Eev initially, we talk about the patience of Job. Eev is so patient. Mrs. Eev has a brief walk-on part where she says, why don't you just curse God so he'll take you out of your misery? And Eev responds with the immortal words, Hashem Nasan, God gives and Hashem takes. May the name of God be blessed. And this is the basis of the phrase, the patience of Job. But whoever coined the patience of Job only read chapter one of the book of Eve and didn't read the rest. Because Eev is visited by his friends, his three friends, Eliphaz, Bildad, and Sofer. And they sit with him for seven days and seven nights. And they don't say anything. And this is the Makarian halacha that when you pay a shiva call, you don't talk until the Avel talks. 
but something happened during those seven days in which Eov got progressively more agitated and upset. And at the end of the seven days, he explodes in a paroxysm of fury, cursing the day that he was born, challenging God, demanding answers, needing explanations. And then the book moves into a dialogue or a trialogue in which each of his friends tries to present a position. And there's a fourth friend who joins later, Elihu. Now, we obviously do not have time to go over the nuances of the different positions, but I'm gonna be very, very simplistic just to give a basic shot and obviously more will come out uh, in the Q and A. But the friends essentially espouse what you might call, and this is not pejorative, a conventional religious philosophy. That is, God is good, and a just and good God is not going to inflict pain on somebody unless they deserve it. So you, Mr. Eve, must have some sins that you need to be misogyn. You have to do chuba. Maybe you're not as righteous as you think you are. Meaning, if bad things happen to you, it can't be because you're righteous. It must be because you have sins. Now, they say it in different ways, and style is very important here. Some of the friends say it in a very gentle, kind, supportive way. Look into your life. Make a cheshman and nefesh. But you know, as Eev refuses to accept the gentle Muslim, they ramp it up. Meaning at, at some point at the end, they say, there's never been a sinner as bad as you. You're the worst guy that's ever been. By the way, psychologically, this is very fascinating because this is often the dilemma of the caregiver who's trying to help and the afflicted person is not responding, the caregiver might actually, actually turn against the person they're trying to help in frustration. Why aren't you listening to my words of wisdom? And the like. And again, there's a fourth friend who again makes kind of the same point. The Malbim, other commentaries, show nuances and differences in, in their approaches. But the common denominator of all of these are the notion there must be something wrong with you. Now, you know the old saying, be careful for what you pray for because you might get it. Eov is constantly saying, I want to hear it from God. I want to hear it from God. I want to hear it from God. And God finally shows up in a whirlwind, very scary scene, and says to Eov, you called? You want to hear from me? And Eov says, yeah, like, what's going on? So God shows him, I think, uh, the equivalent of a magnificent National Geographic uh, travelogue. He shows him the wonders of the world. He shows him the stars and the planets and the deserts and the mountains and the snow and the ice and the magnificent gigantic animals. And he says to Eve, pretty good, huh? Could you do this? Were you there when I created all of this magnificent world? Now, it seems that God is not answering any question at all. God is just showing Eve, hey, it's a pretty good universe, Eve. Think you could do better. But strangely enough, at the end of God's magnificent, by the way, if you love nature, uh, this is one of the most beautiful descriptions of the natural world that appears in Tanakh. The world of mountains and beauty and gardens and, and planets and snow and ice and wind and hurricanes, the whole magnificent panorama 
of a universe full of power and might and beauty. And Eev says one word to God. He says, Nichamti. Now, Nichamti can have two translations in Hebrew. It can either mean, I'm comforted, you have comforted me, or Nichamti can also mean, I regret what I've said. Either way, Eev seems to be placated by God's words. And God says, your friends are wrong, Eev. Your friends are blaming you. They're wrong. Now, in some ways, that's good news and that's bad news. Because the good news is, hey, I'm not a bad guy. The bad news is, so now I have a kasha. If you would have told me I'm a bad guy, at least I would know why it's happening. But now that I'm not a bad guy, why is it happening? So God shows him the National Geographic travelogue, and he is placated with Nicham. What's going on? Hashem is not answering the question. And why is Eev happy with what Hashem told him? You can spend your life pondering this book. This is not a book in which we can give quickie pshatim, uh, you know, little vertlech to try to explain what God is doing. But I would suggest three interrelated ideas. Idea number one, which is not so much in our Messiah, is that God is simply overwhelming Eev with his might and his power. He's telling Eev, shut up, don't ask questions, because I could do a lot worse to you if I wanted to. Kind of like a parent saying to a child, you know, you want to, you know, you want to get hit, you know, you want to do something wrong, I can give it to you twice as bad. Which means, shot number one, which is not in our Messiah so much, is Hashem is simply telling Eev, don't ask questions, I could do worse if I wanted. That's one mahalach that some modern commentaries say, but that's not our Messiah and that does not fit our view of a benevolent God. Shot number two is deeper, that we exist in our world, not only as discrete individuals, but we exist as kind of atoms, as part of a larger whole. And sometimes things that don't make sense happening to me as an individual are necessary for the entire pattern of the universe. It's like the old story that we are like actors in a play and imagine that you only have one page in a million page play and that one page says, enter stage left and break your leg. So you're gonna to go to the director and say, this doesn't make sense. And the director says, you're such a shaita. If you read the half a million pages before and half a million after, you would know this is critical. This would have changed the whole school, the whole plan. So what Hashem is showing you is Hashem is showing you that the universe is complex and interrelated. And the things that happen to me are not only because of me, but they're part of a whole mahalech that spans centuries in which any little change would change everything. And therefore what he's showing you is the interrelationship of the universe. You know, ecologists talk about the fact that you eliminate some little fish or little worm, that changes everything in the world. So your mistake, Eev, is you're acting as if the only relationship God has is between you and him, as opposed to looking at the ripple effects that are Nogea everybody else. But the third explanation, which I think is really the most powerful is, God is not asking, a, God is not answering the question at all. Eve has a question. And God basically says, 
Taka, you have a good question. And I want you to know that just as Moshe Rabbeinu didn't get an answer the first time, Moshe Rabbeinu, who may have written me of, does not get an answer the second time. The point is, I'm with you. I exist. In other words, Eev started off with a question, but he never got an answer to a question. Instead, he felt the presence of Hashem. What Hashem is telling him is, I know you're suffering. I know life is hard. I know it doesn't make sense. I am with you. I am there. When one feels the presence of Hashem, they can bear even that which doesn't make sense, even that which seems unfair. So it's an amazing thing. Moshe asked Hashem for a reason, and Hashem said, not telling. Moshe tries to explore the reason to a philosophical novel. And once again, his answer is exactly the same. Feel the presence of Hashem, and you will have strength, and you will have hope, and you will have comfort, and you will have courage. Not in the sense of specific answers. But those who believe sometimes don't need the answer. They can go on in the light of that uncertainty. And that I think is one of, I mean, there are infinite messages here, but one of the great messages of Eov is we can't always have specific answers. You know, I, I've been a Rav for many, many years and I'm sometimes overwhelmed with the pain that exists in the world pain of all sorts. There's financial difficulties. There's emotional difficulties. Shalom bias. There's illness. There's depression. There's despair. There's loneliness. And it can be very, very overwhelming. Very overwhelming. In which people who are fundamentally good, fundamentally decent, go through so much. And you know, we like to give this answer and this answer and this answer. You know, we have Mahalchit. But, you know, when you're dealing with the facts on the ground, then you're dealing with the actual people. Ultimately, we have to admit, and I'll say right off the bat, that we don't have definitive answers. But what we can offer is what God offered you. God also did not give Eev an answer. But Hashem gave Eev empathy, support, chizuk. And that's really the best we can do to try to emulate the ways of HaKadosh Baruch So I, I guess that's kind of a, an opening remark that I hope uh, would set the tone. Yes, that's, that's great. Um, let's jump in over here. We're going to start first with a poll. We're going to ask everybody a question. Everybody should answer honestly what they feel, just a general question. And then we've got a bunch of questions that came in. I just want to mention Rabbi Breidowitz gives a weekly Q&A in, uh, in Arsameach, and he has a podcast that they listen to it. They're unbelievable. They range from anything to everything, <laughs> literally from anything to anything. Tonight, I know people want to ask questions from all abroad, you know. We're going to try to focus basically on this topic, and the Shemar Bredos will come back again and grace us again down the road, and we'll cover other topics. Um, so let's start off with the poll, and then um, we'll, we'll take it from there. Give me one second. Okay, three question poll. These opinions, okay? These are your feelings. So don't take it the wrong way. Why do you think good people suffer and evil people seem like they have everything going for them? Three choices. You can choose any of the three. Which one resonates with you the best? Because the evil people are getting their payment down here. 
option one. Option B is because Hashem loves the good people so much, he wants to give them more hardships to reward them. Or option C, I don't think there's an answer. The world is meant to be random. Some people get, some people don't get. It's called Bechira. Second, second poll. Do you really believe that Hashem gives us pain and suffering based on what we can handle and our need for our self-growth? There's three possible answers that I put. Let's see what the, the answer is. Yes, 100%. There's a perfect calculation for everything. I don't ever question. Option two, I hear it, but I don't believe it's true. Since a person is created to get stronger with struggles naturally, so whatever Hashem will give him, he'll just naturally become stronger. It's not that there's a calculation for it exactly. Or number three, I think it's a random to make the world not clear in order we get paid for believing and trusting in Hashem. So you get schar. Third question. Again, you answer what, you're, what you feel. It's not a, it's not a you know. Third, third question. In the story of Eeyah, when the Sutton takes everything away from him, do you feel it's a fear challenge? Two options. Yes, a person's created to withstand whatever Hashem will give him. Or option B, sometimes challenges are just too much for people and it seems unjust. So everybody, please answer that to the best of your ability. Somebody texted me, not, none of the answers are what I feel, okay? It's not, it's not. Some of them, you feel all of them. It just meant to get a concept of feeling and then we'll take it from there. Okay, we'll give it five seconds and then we'll share it with everybody. And then we will uh, jump into questions again. We are... Live questions go first. Anybody has a live question, please, you could ask Rabbi Bradowitz anything literally on the planet. So please, Chapa Ryan, you have the of having Rabbi Bradowitz here to text me. And live goes first. If you have any questions, text me, Samazoy. But live questions go first. Okay. Um, let's share the poll. Okay. I think almost everybody voted over here. Let's see over here. Yeah. Rabbi Bradowitz, you have 575 people here with you tonight. Well. <laughs> okay. So let's share the poll with everybody. Okay. The first question was like this. Why do you think good people suffer and evil people seem to have everything going for them? So you have a, an, a, an equal split across the board. Three, 30, third, half, third of the people believe because the evil people are getting their payment down here. 39%, a little, the, little bit the most, was Hashem loves the good people so much he wants to give them more hardships to reward them more. And 29% of the people, I don't think there's an answer. The world is meant to be random. So some people get, some people don't get. So it should be Bechira. All right, all right, this is what the Ilum answered. If you have any comments on any of them, you can say it. I'm going to jump to the next one. No, I just want to say that the truth of the matter is, uh, and again, this will be more developed, uh, you know, these are not either or types of questions, meaning to say, HaKadosh Baruch Hu is operating in a multivariable context in which sometimes there are consequences of Bechira, sometimes there's even in Yonim of Mazalos uh, that can control things, sometimes there is punishment for hate, sometimes there is Tikkun to bring out strengths and qualities that would otherwise be dormant. Sometimes it is connected to Gilgal, past life, meaning to say, when we talk about six million Jews dying in the Holocaust, there could be six million reasons why they died, as opposed to a single reason. So just as Chazal say, when there's a machlokas, these and those are the words of the uh, eternal God. The truth is, on the issue of evil and why tzaddikim suffer, there can sometimes be certainly very much more than one single single factor that's going on. I think you see the answer. That's why people it's like divided in three. I think that that's really it. Yeah. Okay. The second question: Do you really believe that Hashem gives us pain and suffering based on what we can handle and need for self growth? So, sixty-five percent of people here, yes, a hundred percent. It's a perfect calculation for everything. They don't ever have a question when things happen. 16% of people, I hear it, but I don't believe, since it's true, a person is created to get stronger with their struggles naturally. 
And 90% of the people say, I think it's random to make the world not clear in order. We get paid for believing to having a moon and and trusting in Hashem. Yeah, I guess my, my, my comment would be, I'd like to bring in a very important idea of the Chazanish uh, in the Sefer Amuno B'Tachem. You know, we have the famous statement of the Gemara, Kol Madi Avid Rachmano L'Tavavid, whatever God does is for the good, and Gamzu L'Tova, Nochonish Gamzu, is the person who is suffering, and the Gamzu L'Tova. So the Chazanish says that we make maybe a dangerous, oversimplistic mistake when we assume that Gamzu Latova means everything will have a happy end. Everything will turn out the way we want it to turn out. Because obviously we know in life that people die, we know there's tragedies. So the Chazanish made the point, and this is a more mature view, that Gamzu Latova does not mean everything will be Pollyannish, everything will be the cherry on top of the Sunday. Rather, life will be will often be very, very hard. But Hashem is doing it for a purpose. There is an ultimate good that's going to be served. So Gamzula Tobi doesn't mean I'll have a happy ending in my sense. You know, forgive me for, for uh, quoting uh, Mick Jagger, maybe it's not appropriate, uh, but uh, there's a one of his verses, not that I've listened to the song, but one of the verses I've come across in reading is he has a song that says, you don't always get what you want, but you get what you need. And that kind of encapsulates, I think the Chazinish is, uh, is probably the first time anyone ever compared the two people. <laughs> Again, totally improper. Uh, but, but that kind of encapsulates the idea that life is not about what is pleasant for me, but life is about what is meaningful for me, what I need. And the Gamzu Latova is Hashem will give me what will make me the greatest, best person. I'm able to be. And Rav Soloveitchik said it a little differently. Rav Soloveitchik pointed out that the issue of theodicy should not be approached theologically. It should be approached halachically. And what he means is the following. Theology is asking, why did God do something? And maybe I don't know that. Halacha is asking, how do I respond to the situation that I've been given? And that's a meaningful question. What do I do given my matzah? That is something I can deal with and I must deal with. So once again, and again, I, if I could refer to a secular book uh, written by a deeply religious man who was not formally from, he had no education. Uh, this is Viktor Frankl, the immortal book, one of the great, great uh, books of the 20th century, Man's Search for Meaning, in which out of his own experiences in the concentration camp, he sh and for me to say it would be pretentious, but he was a person who went through those experiences. How it is often our confrontation with the greatest depths of evil that can make us into the people that we otherwise would never have been. And I think that is the hashkafa of the Torah. Okay, beautiful, right? Let's, let's, let's hit the third poll. A lot of people, I just want to say the people that are texting, a lot of people are texting, uh, amazing questions, very powerful questions. Again, the live ones go first. Right, is ready for all. Don't, don't feel uncomfortable. This is six, three, we're all in it together. So please feel comfortable. Last question we had in the poll, in the story of you, when the Sutton takes everything away from him, do you feel it was a fair challenge? 55% said, yes, a person is created to withstand whatever Hashem will give him. Right, it's 45% of the people feel Sometimes challenges are just too much for people and it seems unjust. 
Well, again, uh, emotionally, I certainly understand that. And there are times that I will admit that I feel that way as well. Uh, but, you know, there's an old cliche that God never gives you a test that you uh, cannot pass. I will counter one cliche with another cliche. God never gives you a guaranteed pass either, because that would have no point. Meaning in every Nisayon that God gives us, we certainly have the potential to fail. And I cannot look down at anybody that has been broken by their Nisayonos, because I don't know if I could pass them. How can I judge a person? How can I look down at a person who, because of suffering, lost their faith in God? Nevertheless, I do believe as a religious Jew that ultimately there was a way that we could pass these Nisayonos. There, there is a way we could grow from this Nisayonos. And therefore, I don't believe God gives us a challenge beyond our capacity. But very, very often we do get broken. And therefore, as I say, I don't sit in judgment, but I do think that there was always a possibility of growing from that Nisayan. Now, sometimes it takes time. I mean, I think of someone even like Ali Weizel, Allah Vashalom, that for many years after the Holocaust, he essentially rejected a lot of Judaism. He thought that God was unjust. But after a number of years, he made peace with Hashem. He didn't make peace with the Holocaust. He made peace with Hashem. And in a very moving editorial in the New York Times, he said to God, we've been separated for too long. Can't we get together again? I don't understand you. I don't know why you did this, but I want to be close to you once again. So sometimes it takes a lot of time. You can't always rush a process. Uh, when a person goes over bereave, goes through a bereavement, goes through a depression, sometimes we want to get them out of their funk a little too quickly. A person needs a time to grieve. A person needs time to complain. A person needs time to even have kindness against the Rebbe Sometime. But the hope would be that eventually they can get to a place where if they don't understand, at least they can move forward and understand that there's a Gamzula Tova even if they don't perceive it right now. And that's the hope. But as I say, it takes time and you cannot rush the process. You have to respect the right of a person to grieve. That is why we have our veilers. I mean, think about it. If the attitude is simply, I should, I should move to an immediate Gamzulatova modality, then why mourn uh, the day that your father dies? Go dance at a chasm. What, what do you, what do you, why does the Tyra mandate sadness and grieving and mourning? The answer is because the Tyra in its infinite wisdom understands that even if whatever Hashem does is Latayr, I as a human being need to experience sadness and bereavement and grieving, and then I could go on. Okay, I'm gonna start with a question that uh, they sent in and we'll see where it goes. Is it possible that we're just too busy comparing to other people and what other people have? See, whatever I have is what I'm supposed to have. So why, why are some people so busy with what other people have and comparing? Yeah, um, well, that's a very, very excellent point. And uh, I think the questioner is a big tzaddik. Uh, in a sense, you're not asking a question, you're giving an answer. Meaning <laughs> to say, a lot of our discontent is that we look at other people and we say, why can't I have what they have, etc." And then we feel God is cheating us and Hashem is not taking care of us. 
you're 100% right. If a person were to focus on the blessings in their lives and have a karasatov appreciation for what Hashem gave them and not look at others so much, a lot of the angst that we experience would in fact go away. Uh, there's a story they tell in the, it's not even a Jewish story, but they tell it in the special education community. And I've seen speakers use it in, in the Yiddish guide as well. It's a beautiful story. Um, a woman was describing the trials and challenges of raising a severely autistic child. And she gave a mushal. She said, you know, every parent dreams they're going to have a perfect child, a brilliant student, a charismatic personality. And he gave the mushal that there was a woman who all of her life wanted to go to Italy. And she was saving money to go to Italy. And finally, she finally got enough money. And somehow she got on the wrong ship or the wrong plane. I don't know how it happened, Lamaisa. She wound up in Holland. And she was so tzibrachen because Holland was not Italy. And all of the things she dreamed about, she didn't get. But because of that, she never saw the beauties of Holland. And Holland, too, was beautiful. But it's beautiful in a different way than Italy. But she was so fixated on the life that she wanted to have that she never appreciated the life that she was given. You know, there's a saying, if you don't uh, have the life that you love, try to love the life that you have. And that, I think, is a very, very profound idea that if we could overcome the jealousy, the envy, if we could look at the life that we were given as something good, as something blessed, then I think uh, that could help us a lot through our lives, 100%. So as I say, I think this is not a question, this is actually par a partial answer to the issue of how we deal with adversity and struggle in life. It's beautiful, Rabbi Breitowitz, it's beautiful. Okay, we have the first live question, you're on. Hi, Rabbi Breitowitz, thank you for taking my question. Um, I think most of the idea of my question was touched upon in the introduction, but I think I'm gonna ask it from a different perspective. Um, basically, just generally, we know when we all go through severe challenges or even regular challenges, the classic answer when we go to a Rav, Rosh Hashiva, Chacham, they say, if you really believe that there's a Cheshmethis and what Hashem does for the best, you could really be happy. That's the classic answer I got. I mean, I'm sure, I don't know if everyone else got that type of answer. The question is like, what does that exactly mean? Like, are we just, is it just like a placebo effect? Just be, believe that there's a cheshben to this and you'll be happy. Like, obviously, even if we know there could be a cheshben, but if we don't know the cheshben, so what type of happiness could we have? Is there a way to be happy without knowing the cheshben? Why is the goodness behind the thing that is there? Like, what, also, I like, kind of like, you know, in all other the hard questions of Kalyas that we have, how do we know Yiddishkeit is MS? How do we know there was a Maimon Har Sinai? I mean, uh, the, the Rav talked about it in the beginning. We understand that it's a real question and we better give good answers because if not, I mean, what we're doing may be a whole whatever. But over here, for some reason, it's what's the reason that over here our Seichel has to be taken? Like, I understand that it has, like, we can't use our Seichel and there is no answer, but why? Why is this thing different than the other things? And what is the coping mechanism that when you say you could have empathy with Hashem, what does that exactly mean? That, like, is that what you mean we could be happy? 
like what could we do when we are we really have this most serious challenges and we have no clue what could be i mean we could always imagine things in the days of the arizal he could give you a cheshben there's a gilgal this and we could always imagine we were a gilgal but if we don't know what the gilgal was how could we appreciate it and continue on our lives and our journey uh, again it's a very excellent question uh, first though let me let me reiterate the point that i said earlier you know buddhism Lahavdil, uh, teaches that suffering is an illusion and therefore there's no point in it, suffering at all i think judaism does not accept that judaism does recognize the reality of suffering the reality of sadness this is why they're so the notion that you should automatically be besimcha i tell the person be besimcha you know, uh, that may sometimes be premature. In fact, my first avayda, when someone comes to me with adversity and with suffering, is not to poo-poo it away by saying, Gamzul Tova. Gamzul Tova is what I should say when I'm going through suffering. It shouldn't automatically be what I say when you're going through suffering. Uh, rather, my avayda is empathy, compassion, feeling for you, no say be all in But at some point you are correct that Gamzulatova is going to factor in and move me to a new place. Uh, so now, the question you're asking is a very good. Good. If, if the only answer we have to this suffering is a black box in which we say, for sure, there's an explanation, but I'm not going to tell you what it is, and you have no way of knowing what it is, then in what way can I be comforted if I'm simply given no insight at all? But I think uh, the answer to that, I, I hate to say the answer because emotionally there may not be a, an answer, but I think the idea is, once again, ask yourself, what does this challenge me to become? What type of person can I become as a result of this? An example I give very often of people that I know personally, many of you might have heard of the Kobe Mandel Foundation founded by Rabbi Seth and uh, Sherry Mandel, and they lost a child along with his classmate to a brutal terrorist attack in Tekoa. The two kids, 12-year-old kids, were playing under a cave, subterranean cave, and they got their skulls smashed in by so-called Arab freedom fighters, great courageous guys who attacked two 12-year-olds. They were brutally murdered. I can tell you that the Mandels were so, so, so devastated by this, that this was beyond grieving, beyond crying. This was the greatest, greatest tragedy that a human being could possibly suffer. I mean, nothing, nothing can top this. And for a while, they were paralyzed and immobilized. But after a while, they started a foundation called the, in memory of their son, Kobe, Hashem Yintomdamo, Kobe Mandel Foundation that offers financial, medical, psychiatric assistance to families that have been victimized by terrorism. And because of this tragedy, they turned the tragedy into a source of light, a source of goodness. They took what was so meaningless and absurd in some way, and they turned it into a driving mission that brings comfort and chizuk to tens of thousands of people over many, many years. And this is something they would not have, they would not have even thought about had they not gone through this tragedy. And Mrs. Mandel herself wrote a magnificent book, which I, I urge people to read, and called The Blessings of a Broken Heart. 
which exactly goes through this idea. And of course, that's Viktor Frankl's thesis in Man's Search for Meaning. So I think the way we get comfort and solace is by taking the challenges of life and asking ourselves, what can I do to become a greater person, a better person? Many of you might have heard of the actor Christopher Reeve, who died a few years ago. He was Superman, a guy. I'm not even giving a Jewish example. And Christopher Reeve suffered a tremendous accident. He was paralyzed in a riding accident. There was a point at which he wanted to take his life, but he couldn't even commit suicide by himself. He couldn't move. His wife talked him out of it. She said, let's talk for, for a night. If you still want to kill yourself, I'll kill you, she said, but let's schmooze a little bit. Uh, and she talked him out of it. Again, a very righteous woman in that way. And he changed his life around. He began to give uh, speeches, talks, giving people inspiration. And he said about himself, he would never wish his accident on anybody, but he likes the person he became more than the person that he was. Because the person that he was was focused on wealth, accomplishment, egotism. And now he learned through his awful struggles, empathy and compassion and care. This, in a sense, may be an awful price to pay, an awful price to pay. But ultimately, this can be the catalyst to make us the type of person that we never would have become had we not had those struggles. And the beautiful thing about it is that this can apply to minor struggles as well as major struggles, meaning even in our minor struggles, I didn't get the job I wanted. I didn't get into the medical school that I wanted. Nevertheless, there is this capacity to take, now the old t-shirt saying, if life gives you lemons, you try to make lemonade. And that I think is the solace that we, that we get. Um, I'm sorry, I just, uh, I have a little bit of a technical problem. I hate to bring this up. I need to, I need to plug in my computer. I'm on battery. Just give me two minutes. No problem. No problem. Take your time, Rabbi Radowitz. Okay, Menachem. Hi, it's Coach Menachem here. If you enjoyed, please consider supporting us with a small monthly, monthly donation to help sustain the future episodes. And it will be greatly appreciated. Thank you in advance. So what are you, Taina? Solid, Reverend Brother. Solid. Whoa. All the people that are texting me, I'm getting so many texts at once. Okay, the next slide, one of them. Hold on one second. I'm not going to get the catch up on all the questions before texting me. <laughs>
I'll say a story from the Ramban while we're here on this topic. I don't know if Rabbi Brothers can hear me. Rabbi Brothers, can you hear me? I'm going to say a story. Can you connect? I hear you. Yeah, yeah. It's a famous story with the Ramban. The Ramban, I believe, not the Ramban. The Ramban or the Nun. I think the story was that there was a person that uh, was dying, and he had a bunch of daughters. And and he said to him, "I need you to make sure that all my daughters get married. You take care of the chasen, the money." He so the Ramban said, "I'll take care of it, but I'll ask that you, when you go up to Shmayim, why don't you come to me in a dream and tell me why so many people suffer for so many from so many different sorrows?" This is the way I heard the story. So he said the first daughter got engaged, got married, never came to him in a dream. Second daughter, well, the last daughter was getting married and it was the night before the wedding. And then he came to the Ramban in a dream. So the Ramban said, I, you know, I waited for all the all your daughters to get married. He told me, you promised me you're going to come to the dream. He said, yeah, it's a very big tsar for me in Shemayim to come to you. But I made a promise I had to keep it. The reason why I never came to you is because when you came up to Shemayim, there's no question. You see everything so clearly. There's no question anymore. You ever heard that story? Yeah, yeah, yeah beautiful, beautiful. By the way, if I, if I could add a little word to this. Sure, sure. Uh, in fact, I uh, did not see this word inside, but somebody told it to me. I had mentioned that when Maitre Rabbeinu asked Hashem, show me your way, so the angel he wanted to know, why do Sadiqim suffer? So Hashem passes by and he said, you will see me from the back, you will not see me from the front. So I mentioned earlier, the Chassam Cyprus Pshat, that you won't understand things as they're happening. But in retrospect, at the end of time, you will see how everything makes sense. But uh, the additional word that I heard was this. Chazal say that Meishu Rabbeinu saw the back of Hashem's tefillin. Hashem was wearing tefillin, whatever that means. And Hashem saw the kesher of the tefillin shel reish. So here's what it says. We know that tefillin shel reish has two ritzuas. There are two straps in front of you. The right strap is supposed to be a little longer than the left strap. The right represents Hashem's kindness, chesed, and the left represents Hashem's din, and chesed is dominant over din, but still there is din in the world. But when you see it from the back, you see that both straps emanate from the same place. So even what looks like the din of Hashem is actually a hidden, a hidden rachamim, if you really understand it. Well, and indeed, that's the meaning of Shema. Hashem Elokeinu, Hashem Echad, says the Kliyakar. Hashem and Elokeinu. Hashem is Midas HaRachamim. Elokeinu is Midas Adin. Hashem Echad, ultimately, it emanates from Rachamim. That uh, even the Midas Adin is really a different manifestation of Midas HaRachamim in an ultimate sense. Okay, beautiful. Our writers have a bunch of pending live questions. Let's try to get to some of them, okay? Yeah. Okay, you're on. Okay, I guess that's me, right? That's you. Okay. Um, Rabbi Breitowitz, it is, this is, since I've been following you and Yavana and your question and answers and a number of other things, um, I always wished, you know, that I could be, you know, in your kahila or whatever, you could be my rub. So this is my one opportunity. Um, and I, I have to also add that I, I particularly like when you say I may get into trouble when I say this, but, but <laughs> yeah. yeah, because, and, and that's one of the reasons I, I really follow you because you say things where other people fear to tread. Um, 
but don't worry, my I don't think my question is very controversial. Um, and actually, I came up with the second question uh, as you were answering someone else's. Um, so I'll say, say them both together. The one I didn't intend to say was, and I'm not even sure how I could apply it exactly to Tzadik Varelo, but, um, you know, when I'm listening, I imagine other people were all feeling as when we go through our very, very painful experiences and uh, we all get something, like you said, sooner or later, um, it's very hard um, to be, well, you know, we feel like we're in the worst space. And then I listened to, um, you know, the story that you told about, um, I forgot, now I'm thinking just Kobe Bryant, and I know it wasn't that, but you know who I mean. Yeah, exactly. Um, and, you know, the, my first thought is, you know, how can I even speak up? Because I didn't come close. Baruch Hashem should never happen. Ask Shalom. Um, to what she went through. Um, and that's something that could set me backwards. Um, so that's one thing that I, I'm just putting out that it's difficult to keep in mind the guilt that my tsar isn't someone else's tsar. I know you did say, you know, even if it's a job, et cetera, et cetera. Um, but I, something I, I imagine many people grapple with. The question I did submit um, was this eternal question about the feeling, the closeness of Hashem. And um, it's that I have difficulty feeling his closeness, not because I think he left me, but I'm not, I struggle with how do I achieve this in the first place? So, and if I can't call upon him in the best of times, other than to say, thank you, and maybe that's when I feel most profoundly when things are good and I, you know, and I could really appreciate the good at those times, but how can I, even go to the closeness during the bad times. I know it's a big madrega, and most of us uh, have trouble getting there. But this is how you, when you gave um, your question, I mean, you gave the talk before taking the questions. This is, you know, that was your third point that Hashem is with us no matter what. And this is how, this is as close of an answer as you could give. So, I guess it's a question about close, feeling closeness of Hashem, how, yeah, yeah. and then ultimately how. You know, it, it's, it's interesting. I'm sure you've heard this. This is a famous story. And again, it does not originate from the Jewish tradition, but it's been incorporated about the two sets of footsteps. It's a very, very famous mushal in society as a whole that a person says, throughout my life, I always had two sets of footsteps. I'm walking through the sand and God is walking with me. And now I only see one set of footsteps. I'm all alone. I don't feel the presence of God. And Hashem's answer was, no, my son, those footsteps are mine. I'm carrying you through uh, this very, very great difficulty. And it's something that it's hard for us to grasp exactly. But you know, Hashem answers prayers, not always by giving us what we ask for, but by giving us the strength to cope 
with the situation that we're given, to put one foot in front of the other, to keep on going, not to give up hope, to try to be optimistic, to see the good in the world. You know, the Rambam in the Mori Nebuch raises an abstract philosophical question. He says, is there more evil in the world than good? He says, you know, people say life is a veil of tears, life is so bad, only a little good. He says, is there more good than evil? So the Rambam brings a philosophical proof that there's more good than evil from the fact that evil still upsets us. We get upset when bad things happen. Now, if bad things would be the norm of life, then why would we be upset? The very fact that we're outraged, we're upset, we raise a question, implies that there's a lot more good than evil in the world. And that's an interesting perspective. You know, the old story that uh, they never publish good news. Uh, they never publish, uh, or dog, dog bites man, that's not news, that's the man bites dog or whatever, whatever it will be. And the truth is, one of the keys to feeling the presence of Hashem is hakara satov to learn to be grateful and appreciate everything. The fact that you can breathe, the fact that you can walk, the fact that you have people in your life that care about you and that you care about. The more we can focus on being grateful on Hakara Satov for the Chastei Hashem, the more I can feel the presence of God and love him and feel his love for me. That is why the very word Yehudim, the Sfas Emes points out, why are Jews called Yehudim? After all, Yehuda is only one, one tribe. The Svasema says, because Leah called her fourth son Yehuda because she said, now I am grateful. And why was she grateful after number four? Because she knew there were four wives and 12 tribes. Each one gets three. When you get what you're entitled to, you think you're not grateful. You're grateful when you get more than you're entitled to, says the Svasema. Every Jew must go through life with the feeling, Hashem has given me more good than I'm entitled to. I'm grateful for everything. And when you're grateful for everything, then, you know, when things don't go your way, they're not going to break you so much because you don't have the sense of Magiali, I'm entitled to it. Let me point out as well that this is where memory serves a very, very important point. You know, when, we, when we're going through dark moments, we think that's the end. We can't see any hope. We don't see any future. We don't see any way out of it. But then we have to remember that a lot of times we've been there before. We've gone through these struggles and we came out on the other side. Rav Sadok says you have to have faith in Hashem and faith in yourself as well. And memory is very, very important because we can't allow the negative to cancel out the positives as if they didn't exist at all. So I think Hakara Satov coupled with memory and reliving the good experiences in your life can go a long way to creating the attitudes, at least, that allow you to feel the presence of Hashem. Okay. Next live question, you're on. I thank you for taking my call, uh, Ushi and Coach Menachem. You guys are the best. Um, the, the question for the Rav is, it's a little little bit off topic, but I think it's a good uh, general hashkafa question. Being from Orsamech, I think it could definitely be a very good question. My question is, 
in in general, does Hashem does Hashem love uh, all every every year the same? Or for example, does Hashem love Rev, uh, Rev Chaim Kanievsky the same as he loves a uh, little old me? Or or even someone worse, someone doing you know averas does it, is is it an equal uh, platform? That's that's the question. You know that that is a very excellent question, and it's not an easy question. Uh, I'm not sure I can give you a, a definitive answer. The closest I can come to is let's look at the parent relationship, right? Hakadosh Baruch Hu is described as Avinu. So let's imagine he's Malkano as well, but Avinu is certainly one of the aspects by which we define it. So let's ask the same question. I can turn the question on you or on me or any, anyone that's a parent. I have two kids. One kid is righteous, masmin, he does everything right. And the other kid is unfortunately off the derech and uh, maybe on drugs. So here's the question. Do I love the righteous kid more than I love the kid that's off the derech? Now, granted, obviously, I love what the righteous kid is doing, and he's doing much more in accordance with my, with my will, but does that mean my love for the kid off the derech is less, or is it there, but it's tinged with sadness over what could have been and what, and what was not? I think as parents, we have to think about that and, and ask ourselves what our answer would be. And to some degree, that might give us an insight into HaKadosh Baruch Hu. HaKadosh Baruch Hu looks at even the Russia and he sees the potential. After all, everybody is made with the Tzalem Elokim. Vayipach biyapav nishmas chayim ar neshama is a chaylet alokavimal. At least the Jewish soul, non-Jews, we get, get into a different discussion. But the Pashtus, by the way, is that Tzalem Elokim does apply even to non-Jews. That's the, that's the mashmos of the Mishnah in uh, Pirkei Avos. So we have, to, in fact, this is one of the imperatives of Kira Bukhaikim. The Rambam says an interesting thing, that the esod of trying to be Makarev people is, it's an expression of your, not only Avas Yisrael, it's an expression of your Avas Hashem. If you love Hashem, how can you let God's children walk away from their connection to him, right? You can't just, I mean, if a, if a parent had 10 children and nine of them died, you can't comfort the, child, the parent by saying, oh, you have one child left, right? So I guess my answer would be, I think God's love is the same, but God's disappointment is also going to be much, much greater to, the, to, to, to one of us than to Rav Chaim Kedevsky, in which Hashem only gets nachas. But it is an interesting question because there are sukim that do imply that God hates the Rishayim. But the Balatanya writes that even in human emotions, there is such a thing as simultaneous love and hate. And love and hate are not as opposite as you might assume. Love can coexist with hate. And sometimes the greater our love, the greater our hate when we feel betrayed and the like. And I think that complicated dynamic is what is going on with Hashem's feeling towards the, uh, towards the Rishayim. Because you have to understand, a Russia is a tragedy, not only in terms of what he does to other people. A Russia is a tragedy in terms of what he did to himself, the potential that was there. And God grieves over it. God mourns over it. 
And therefore we too have to mourn over it and try to help bring people back to whatever degree we can. Okay, you're on. Hi, thank you very much. Um, first of all, I, I, I really like the idea of instead of finding something secretly good about the challenge, um, you just look at what good it can bring out in, in, you know, in myself. So that really talks to me. Uh, my question now is, if I have a challenge that the challenge itself keeps me from becoming a productive, um, better person. The challenge itself keeps me back from that, doesn't allow me to connect to Hashem, doesn't allow me to be the best person I can be. Say something like depression, anxiety, things that really keep the person back. How can I find challenges like that to be um, good and better myself as a person? Yeah, that, that is a very, very, very excellent, good, good question. Uh, let me get, tell you a story about from Avlevi Yitzchak of Berdichev, in which a man came to the Berdichev before Rosh Hashanah. And the man was a righteous man. The man was a tzaddik. The man had a very difficult life. And the man asked the Berdichev, could you pray for me that I should have an easier life? You know, Rebbe that it's not because I want to be comfortable. I want to learn more. I want to give more tzedakah. I want to serve Hashem more. I want to become a better person. But these sorrows are preventing me from doing it. I just want to serve Hashem in a better way. And the Berdichever said to him, you're 100% right. I know your motives are noble and I will daven for you. And the story goes that after Rosh Hashanah and the whole year, things were just as bad. And the man went to the Berdichever and said, What's going on? And the Berdichever looked at him very sadly. And he said, I'm so sorry, he says, Hashem cherishes what you're doing more than the alternative would have been. <laughs> Again, this is maybe hard to, hard to understand, but essentially he's saying the following. You have, or we have, a certain idea of what does it mean for me to be the best person that I can, to be able to do this and to do that and to do that and to do that? And all of these things are holding me back. But sometimes a person's avaita is to do less, but to struggle and push themselves. And it's in that struggle that they find their redemption and their tikkun, not necessarily in the abstract accomplishments that might be more noticeable. So it really is a question of, you know, you, the language you used in the question was, um, it's holding me back from becoming my better self. So semantically, we have a question, how do I define my better self? Sometimes my better self has to be defined in terms of what did Hashem envision? as my purpose in the world, my struggle in the world. And that may not coincide necessarily with the goals that I would like to have, but I sometimes have to redefine the goals. Now, again, I, I God forbid, I'm not talking down in any way at you because this is an extremely difficult process that you know I struggle with and we all, we all struggle with because all of us have the idea of what is a successful person, even in Ruchnius, even spiritually. We have definitions of success, 
but our definitions of success are not necessarily HaKadosh Baruch Hu's definition of our ultimate success in life. Okay, Rabbi Radowitz, we have another live question. Hi, you're on. Thank you for taking my call. Um, this is really a question more to the side of pain. Um, if Hashem is a kol yachol, why can't he reach the goals that he's accomplishing through the pain without pain? You know, yeah. I, hear, I hear what Hashem yeah. accomplishes with the pain, but if he's a kol yachol, he should be able to accomplish it without, without pain. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, th this is a certain genre of question that, that comes up in a lot of contexts. Uh, let me just give you another example, which is kind of an analogous question to you. Everyone knows the famous passage in the Derech Hashem from the Arizal, that the reason that Hashem's ultimate goal is to bestow goodness on us. So why do we have to struggle? Because he says that if we were to get the goodness without the struggle, there would be embarrassment, there would be busha. And therefore, we have to struggle so that when we get the good things, there'll be no busha. So the question becomes, well, Akadosh Baruch could have created a situation where we don't get embarrassed. And if we don't get embarrassed, he could just give us the good without mitzvahs and without any obligations. In other words, the issue becomes uh, Akadosh Baruch could have eliminated the negatives uh, and just give us the, the positives. You know, I'm not sure uh, that I have a, a direct answer for that. I mean, the, the point basically is that, you know, in some ways, the world of struggle is, is, is necessary for growth. Now, to simply say, why can't there be growth without struggle? I guess the question would be, would that be growth? That would just be an artificial thing that's engrafted on us that did not come from anything internal within our dynamic. And for something to be part of us, to, to be part of our panemius, to be part of our internal identity, it has to come through a process from within. And, you know, to say that, well, Akadosh Baruch could have made a process from within without the struggle, you know, I, I, I'm just not sure if, if logically, I mean, I, I understand the question. But logically, you're basically saying Hashem could have created a universe with a totally different dynamic, kind of an alternative universe with different laws of spirituality and physics. I think I think what he, um, the question, my understanding is like, if Hashem wants me to be this type of person, he could, doesn't have to make me suffer to become that type of person. He's a polyakal, he could do it any other way. No, but the thing is, you wouldn't have been this type of person. This type of person comes from the struggle. So to simply say God could have short-circuited the process would have meant that the process didn't occur within you. And therefore it, it wouldn't have been the same unless HaKadosh Baruch Hu would kind of create an alternative universe structure, uh, which the Rambam says already is a question we can't, really, we can't really ask. In other words, it's kind of like asking, why does gravity go down instead of going up couldn't Hashem have made gravity going up? Well, yeah, he could have, but, but this is the structure of the universe. And in the structure of the universe, transformations of human beings occur through struggle and growth. Uh, they are not automatic things. Now you're asking, God could have made a universe where it is automatic, but you, know, you understand that that would have been a different universe. 
but it is a good question. I understand that this is not a full full answer, but it's similar to the Derech Hashem problem that I made. Why couldn't God just eliminate the embarrassment? The shot, I think it was by Moshe Rabbeinu that he said that if something would happen differently, I would have to return the world to Sheshemai Barashas because everything had an exact husband from Sheshemai Barashas. Like things have to work in a certain pattern. Well, that, that, that's kind of how it is. Meaning to say there is a certain structure here. And Hashem could make an alternative structure, but that would change that would change the whole the whole picture. Uh, the universe is founded on a certain structure of physical principles and spiritual principles. Okay, Marty, let's get to the next question. There's so many live questions right away. So I hope you have all morning. <laughs> okay, you're on. Yes, I, I, okay. I just got to mention on Trishma, but I have Okay, okay. Okay, so thank you very much uh, for the rough. It's amazing. Talk. I'm looking forward to hearing it again uh, with the recording. Uh, my question is, and maybe you have answered it somehow already, but I, I need to hear it again. Um, <clears throat> the Rav mentioned uh, stories of greatness that come out from pain, like uh, Superman or different organizations that were founded through people who had special needs children or different very difficult challenges in their lives. <clears throat> so those are stories of greatness and they are usually very unique stories. I wonder whether there is any research on all the broken lives in the process, on all the stories of people who had tremendous challenges from which they never recovered. No, no listen, I, you're 100% you're correct. I, 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 don't, I don't mean to suggest that uh, everybody will be able to do this. Uh, there are many, many people who are broken, many people who are depressed. If you remember, I had even said that side by side with the idea that God never gives you a test that you can't pass, I would also submit Hashem never gives you a test that you will pass. There is no guaranteed pass, in other words. In every trial, there is the possibility of failure, there is the possibility of being broken, and there are korbanos. There is no question there are korbanos. Uh, but I do think that it's our responsibility as human beings and as Jews to look for the hidden potentials in life. Because what's the alternative? Uh, as again, Viktor Frankl's book is it's very, very instructive here. Uh, one can choose the path of bitterness, despair, despondency, or one can choose, one can make a choice that I'm going to try to make my life something beautiful and something good and to try to find within me some hidden strength, some courage to deal with the darkness that engulfs me. Mm -hmm. And Frankl said that that is the measure of a human being. A definition of a virtuous human being is somebody who can make the choice. So as I said before, I do not dare sit in judgment on people that are overwhelmed by the adversities in their lives. Pirkei Avos tells us, do not judge anybody until you reach their place. And as Fasemis writes, nobody ever reaches that place of somebody else. But I do still believe that the message of the Book of Eov and the message of really all of our Sifrei Musar is that we try to find the light in the darkness. We try to find it. And in that process of trying to find it, we can take even the darkness. In fact, the Zohar has a beautiful evocative phrase. The Zohar has a phrase called 
the Cardanusa. Rutsina de Cardanusa means black light, the light that is black. Now, black light is a contradiction, but it means that even in the blackness, there's a very hidden light that one tries to discover. Thank you, uh, Rabbi Yitzchak. Thank you, Coach Menachem and uh, Usher for uh, setting this whole thing up. Really beautiful. Um, Rabbi Breitowitz, it was true poetry um, hearing you compare the Chazanish to Mick Jagger. Um, <laughs> really beautiful too, Stel. Um, okay, so, so the question I'm asking, I'm going to ask it in two ways. Um, I'm asking, I'm literally asking for a friend. I'm asking for advice. It's not for me, but I, I want to know, I want some guidance with how to talk to people who are going through this. Um, and I also think that there may be people on this call who are like dying to hear something like what I'm about to ask. And they're, they're just, they're looking for an answer. So the question is, and, and, some really the, the lady who just spoke before me asked this and the lady um, earlier who asked a question like two, three questions ago also asked this, that sometimes there's, there's people in my life, people who I know, stories that you hear where it's just so brutal and so terrible what they've been through and, and they haven't gotten up, you know, they, they got knocked in the mouth and they're laying on their back and, and, what they went through either objectively, how horrible, how terrifying it was, or subjectively because they're more sensitive. And even if objectively other people have been through worse, you know, a lot of us are, 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 are uh, you know, grandchildren or children of, of Holocaust survivors, like it's unfathomable what they went through. But to people who are just knocked down from whatever it was, a molestation, a, a death, something that they went through. What, what can you tell them? What can you give them? What can you show them yeah. that can help them, you know, gain their power back and, 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 and face it? And, and, I, and I'm saying this as someone who truly believes, I'm one of the pollsters who believes like an animamin, that there's nothing Hashem just dishes you that you can't handle. Um, but I believe that. And, and I, don't know, I don't know if everyone, you know, who's been through something really rough, rougher than stuff I've been through, how do you, how do you what could you do for them? Yeah, yeah, well, that's ultimately uh, the uh, $64,000 question, as they say. Uh, the most important thing, first of all, is not to demean the reality of their suffering. And as I said before, sometimes we're too much in a rush to try to resolve the issue, give them a terrace, give them an answer, give them a mahalash, without giving them time to grieve and to vent and, and, and to express their bitterness and express their pain. And therefore, I think first and foremost, we do have an avoda of empathy, of no say be all, to bear the yoke, that a person should know they're not alone. Uh, initially, uh, they're not alone in the sense that, you know, you're there as a friend, you're there to listen, you're there to give your shoulder, and eventually that can move to Hashem. You're not alone because you always have HaKadosh Baruch So I, I do think that's extremely important not to short circuit the process 
of letting people suffer. And I know that's very hard. If you're a person, if I love somebody, I care about somebody, to kind of not take them out of it is very painful for me. But on the other hand, it is a process that people have to go through. But at some point, at some point, uh, we got to go on. We got to live. Uh, we have to make our life something. And once again, you sit down and you discuss with the person at some point, not right away. Listen, this is very, very rough. This is brutal. You've been through a lot. But do you want to be a victim? Is that how you want to define yourself? Or is there something we can do with your life to make it something beautiful and worthwhile to redeem the light that is hidden in this darkness? And I do think that the experience that people go through in many, many cases, at some point in their lives, they will be ready for the next step. If they're given support, if they're given love, if they're given friendship, if they're not abandoned, sometimes people get tired, right? Sometimes people get tired of dealing with people who are going through difficult times. But if you can be a friend that can stay with them through that journey, I think there will be a point in which you can move, help them move on to the next step. Uh, by the way, therapy can be very helpful in these matters too. Um, you know, obviously our values are Torah values, but, but sometimes we need mental health professionals to help people uh, through bereavements or through other types of tragedies, through sexual abuse, uh, certainly. Uh, I know people get in trouble for this. I mean, um, you know, when we have, let's say, victims of sexual abuse, which can be absolutely devastating. I mean, there's no question. And I, you know, I don't want to deny that. I affirm that, uh, that this can be devastating. But at some point, even a victim has to ask themselves, are they defining their life? And this is where people do get in trouble, including me. Are they defining their life as a perpetual victim? Is that kind of going to be the, the meaning of the rest of their lives? Or will they be able to extract a higher meaning from everything they've been through? Maybe to become an advocate or whatever it would be. So as I, as I say, there, there is no guarantee that you or any other rabbi or teacher is going to be successful in this. But I think it's a process that does have at least a chance of being successful. But you got to give it time and you can't rush it. Uh, you just have to let the process go through the normal psychological uh, undercurrents that, that it will go through. That sometimes, sometimes that's a challenge for those people in their lives who want to help, like you mentioned. It's harder yeah. for them to see that somebody close to them is not getting up already. It's been a year, it's been two years, let's go. So sometimes yeah. you mentioned therapy, it's sometimes they, you know, the, the healthy one could go to therapy Yep. It, it take, no, you're 100% you're correct. It takes a certain amount of mental health to go into therapy. You're correct. When somebody is in the throes of depression or despair, they literally don't have the energy or the motivation uh, to move on to the next step. But in truth, we have the other famous teaching of both the Rambam and the, and the Sefer Achinach of Adam Nifal Kefipu Losav which means instead of looking at our actions as the outgrowth of our emotional states, our actions can educate our emotional states, meaning sometimes the idea is do, and then you will feel. In marriage counseling, we sometimes tell a person, if you're not feeling loving towards your spouse, act as if, and the love may come. 
sometimes there is the notion of get out of bed, go to work, go to the park, go to the museum. I know you'll hate it. It'll do nothing for you. You'll just feel worse. Over time, those actions can have uh, a bit of a helping and a calming effect on us. Uh, so that's another thing to remember as well, uh, that a person has to sometimes do things that do not correspond to their inner emotional state because this will help them reach that state at some point. Right. So here's, here's another question that somebody sent in. We've been taught that life is like a play, a theater. Everyone is given a role to play and whatever's supposed to happen, whatever's supposed to happen to us will happen. And the people in our lives are just like, it's just like puppets. I am having trouble with that view while I'm trying my best to live a meaningful, terrible life. But I have these puppets that seem like they're really trying to take me down. What are some ways I could refocus myself and stay calm when another life storm seems to come my way? <laughs> yeah, yeah. Well, um, you know, uh, everyone knows the famous uh, song uh, based on words of Rav Nachman of Breslov that the whole world, the whole world is like a narrow bridge. And the most important thing is, don't be afraid. You know, it, it is a jungle out there, meaning to say every single interaction is fraught with dangers. There are uh, things that can destroy you, that can, dis that can disorient you, that can break your spirit. And you have to kind of have a moral and spiritual and psychological compass that says, I will try to withstand the storm. But I do want to say that it's not all bad out there. There's a lot of good in the world. There are people that are kind. There are people that are good. There are people that are caring. Don't despair. Don't look at yourself as I'm the only voice of sanity in a world of irredeemable evil. There are other kindred spirits. And we need that chizak. Shlomo HaMelech says, Two people are better than one because if one person falls down, who's going to pick him up? When you have two people and one falls, he is not only talking about ice and snow, which is also true. He is talking about life. There are moments of weakness. There are moments in which I give up. I fall. I falter. But if I have a friend, that friend can give me strength when I'm weak and I can give that friend strength when they're weak. And I think therefore friendship and community are something that we all have to try to find. And that can give us that ability to navigate all of those puppets as the questioner said it, that are kind of trying to take us away from our goal. One shouldn't think the whole world is that way. The whole world is not that way. And you got to find a little corner of the world where you can be connected to good people because they do exist. In fact, I would say in reality, most people are actually good. You know, we get sidetracked uh, by the experiences of life. And uh, Moshe Cordovero writes that when you confront difficult people, mm -hmm. try to imagine them as children. Because at one point in their lives, they probably were cute, adorable babies. You know, one-year-old, two-year-old. So at what point did they become these bad people that they are now? And if you understand that it was once a cute baby and now he's a rotten adult, 
Rav Moshe Kedivera says, instead of being angry, you're going to feel sorry. You're going to feel pity. You're going to feel compassion. What happened to that wonderful little child? And the saying in the uh, community, psychological community is, hurt people hurt. People who hurt others are because they were hurt. And with that type of understanding, I can take insults less personally because I say it's not about me, it's about them. And if it's about them, I can feel sorry for them, but they're not going to own my life and they're not going to control my life because I can feel compassion instead of anger. So these are kind of strategies that I think can help us in this area. Right, it was beautiful. Okay, you're on. Hi. It seems like you, um, I really enjoyed listening to you. I, I, it seems like you've answered a, a lot of the questions that people have brought. I must be on the same wavelength as a lot of them. Or this idea that, you know, that some of us maybe were born with more challenges than others. It's one thing Joe was you know, a happy-go-lucky guy and that he had, was tested with bad luck. But what about you know, those of us who may feel that we had like, yeah, the wrong environment, born with a dysfunctional situation. You know, we, you know, we don't have the privileges or advantages, but um, I mean, is, is it hard to retain a certain positivity? I, I just want to say that I'm glad that you didn't mention anything about punishments, you know, because I don't know why bad things happen, you know, some, you know, but there are some people maybe feel that way that God just doesn't like me or whatever the reason is. Is there any way to least block out that kind of thought pattern. Yeah, now, yeah, 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 again, I mean, uh, the question you're raising is, is, a, is a powerful, meaningful question. I just want to say that I think even punishment is, is often misunderstood. There is, of course, a concept of punishment in the Torah. You know, you, one cannot deny that. Punishment in this world, punishment in the next world. But even then, the punishment ultimately comes from love. It is corrective. One might analogize it to physical therapy. Let's imagine a person broke their legs and they have to go through therapy. Now, I've seen this myself. The person is screaming with pain and the person is begging not to have to walk on these broken legs or whatever it is. And it seems to be the most barbaric thing to make them go through this. And yet, this is the therapy that will enable them to resume function. I think divine punishment is a spiritual therapy in the same way of physical therapy. God does not punish because he's vindictive. God does not punish because he hates. God does not punish because he doesn't like you. But God decides through his inscrutable wisdom that we need this certain purification of our soul to be able to be rehabilitated. So look at punishment, even Gehenna as essentially spiritual rehabilitation to prepare our souls to be purified and connected with God. I think that's a very important point because there's all the difference in the world between an abusive person that simply beats you and a loving parent that disciplines you to bring you to a better place. And the Torah itself says that God's chastisements to the Jewish people, as difficult as they are, is like the chastisements of a father of a parent to a child, right? So that, that's a very, very important orientation uh, to have. 
Now, the notion of different people are born into different circumstances, which is a very interesting one. You know, uh, obviously, I teach in Or Sameach, and uh, most of our Talmudim, not all of them, are people who are Bali Chuba. And one of the things, when you come to a city like Yerushalayim, and I experienced this myself, is, you know, you meet rabbis and families that are 100 generations of Rabbanim, and the six-year-old kid knows, knows more Gemara than, than, than we know, whatever it would be. And we often get an inferiority complex, and we feel second rate because we just were not born into that environment. But one of the things you need to know is that if the 10th generation Yerushalmi has many gifts that we don't have, the guy that comes from South Dakota or Montana has gifts that the Meyasharim person doesn't have. If Hashem put our neshamos in a certain environment, there are things we get from that environment that we otherwise wouldn't have gotten. And that's why I tell people, when they're Bali Chuba, they should not cut themselves off from their past, but they should try to reclaim from their past that which is valuable and good. Uh, an example I give, although it's not quite a Bal Chuba, was Rav Nassim Svi Finkel, the great Rosh Hashiva of Mir. Everyone knows the story. He grew up in Chicago. He went to a co-ed school. Uh, he was on the basketball team. Now, when he became a great Rosh Hashiva, he did not make believe he didn't have that life. He remembered that life, and that was the basis of how he connected to American kids, by telling them that you can do all of these things and you can still become great in Torah and serve Hashem. That is uh, what Rav Soloveitchik calls not the tshuva of amputating the past, but the tshuva of reclaiming your past. And taking the positives uh, from it. That's a, that's a very important idea that I take my experiences and I build the foundation of my life from those experiences. Okay. Okay, you're on the phone, you're on. Okay, Sean Lillard Breidowitz. Um, I have a question about the, the general question, if you can please clarify, I'm being, I'm Minnesotan. Um, what does it mean to be Ayman bin Asayan? Someone's going through difficulties, obviously. Does Ayman bin Asayan mean that he's in a state of ecstasy, like you hear about Gedalim, as if nothing happened? Or if a person accept, accepts uh, that he, he realizes it's Ras and Hashem and he's living, he's functioning, he's not broken, but he's definitely affected. And he can't function as if he would, if nothing would be going on. He can't learn as well, can't daven as well. But he's functioning, he's learning, he's doing, he's not broken. But he's not in ecstasy. He's not. It is affecting him. Is that cool thing? I'm in Minnesota, or he's not there yet? Yeah. No. I, so I, yeah. Again, a good question. I, I would say that Omid bin Yisayon has many, many, many madregas. Just like Rabbeinu Yaina says, Shuva has infinite madregos. Omid bin Yisayon has infinite madregos. It might be that the very, very highest level is to mamish have uh, the simcha to ilu. It didn't happen. On the other hand, I don't think a Kaddish Baruch Hu expects that of every person. Not every person maybe has an avoided to reach that level. And I think that if a person can still function, and if a person can still see the positives in their lives, and they do mitzvahs and they learn, uh, I, I think that's a very high madrega. And they should be happy with that, meaning to say <laughs> they shouldn't get depressed because they're not only the Nisayan. I mean, in a way, that becomes a depression on a depression. Uh, but 
but don't be too hard on yourself. I mean, uh, if a person is able to keep on going, that's a great mantra. That is a tremendous one. And by the way, that is a great lesson to, to one's children. If one's children see that uh, their parent is going through difficult times, but still manages to learn, to dive in, to do mitzvahs, to be a good father and a good husband, that's a real, real important, beautiful lesson that uh, your children are learning from that. So uh, one should not be too hard on themselves if they haven't reached the absolute highest level. Hashem does not expect everybody to reach the highest possible levels. Right, so I want to jump on this question. Um, Hashem keeps on sending me different wake-up calls. I am not sure what Hashem wants me. How do I go about figuring out what Hashem wants? First goes to the and goes to things. How does he know what he has to work on? Yeah, well, that, that's a real question. You know, the Vilna Gong writes that in the uh, time of the Beis HaMikdash, when we had Nebuah, really the Mikdash Rishon and only the beginning of the Mikdash Eni. So no, we think the Nevi'im were always giving national messages. They were giving messages to Klal Yisrael. The Vilna Gong said Nevi'im were also private uh, therapists, so to speak. You could go to a Navi and you could say, what is my mission? What is my tachlis? What is my goal? Mamish, a Navi would tell you exactly what you need to work on. Unfortunately, today, uh, we don't have Nabua. Uh, today, uh, anyone that claims to be a Navi is either a Shaita or a Katan. So by definition, we're struggling in the dark. And, you know, uh, we never know what the messages really are. In fact, I'll give you a very a practical example. Now, let's assume you have a project that you think is a good project and you find all sorts of obstacles. Every time you're trying to get it further advanced, something happens. Now, sometimes that means it's a simon minashamayim not to pursue it. And sometimes it means it's such a wonderful thing that the Sitra Akra is putting all these difficulties in your path. And therefore, the more obstacles you have is a raya that you're supposed to pursue. Now, these are two opposite interpretations. How do I know what it means in any given in any given situation. So number one, this is why you need a Rebbe, or a Rebbe, this is why uh, you need to be mispalel for Chachma, that the Ebershah should give you clarity. They also bring a, uh, in the name of Rebchaim Belajanah, that if a person is not sure which way they should move in life, they should learn for an hour without interruption. And then whatever machshava falls in their head is a ruach hakaidish, because the Vilna Gaon says everybody has ruach hakaidish. Not nevuah, but ruach hakaidish. But the ruach hakaidish is blocked by the static of taivas and yetzer haras. So you kind of purify yourself a little bit, and then you're able to receive a divine message. But at the end of the day, you're 100% correct. There is a lot of trial and error in that process. You know, we try something, sometimes it's not the right mahalach, then we have to move to something else. So you do need to be flexible and you do need to pivot uh, in your spiritual life. Okay, Rabbi Brad, a few more questions, okay? You good? Yeah. Okay, you're on. Unmute, press star six. There you go. Pinchas, go. Yeah, <clears throat> thank you very much for the the hardening words. Um, I have a question. The Gemara says, 
The person has to thank Hashem for the for the bad, just like if it goes. And the Gemara and the Gemara asks, you know, the, the same, you know, it's not the same bracha. So the Gemara says that you have to be kavod b'simcha. So the, so the question is, I mean, a person when a person when things bad happen, the person should be dancing. And when a per, something good happens, a person's supposed, you know, a person's supposed to. It's supposed to be very besimcha. It's like uh, so, like like, like when like uh, when something good happens, he he find, he, he makes a suda. I'm saying you don't you don't hear about people making sudas and something bad happens. So what does Gemara mean that kishen the same way as something good uh, a person supposed to thank Hashem for something bad and the Gemara says a person should be besimcha. How do how do you relate to such a thing? Yeah, yeah, again, it's a very good question. Uh, let me point out, as I said before that unlike Buddhism, that basically denies the reality of suffering, Yiddishkeit recognizes the reality of suffering. We have Hilchos Avelis, we have Zamanim of Bechia, we have Tishabov coming up where we're naive with all of the halachas of Avelis. And indeed, let me point out that the Nusuch of the Brachas are different. In other words, if, if we were to simply say that all evil is ultimately good, then you might as well make a tova on tragedy. Like, why is there even a different Nusuch? So I think the Havana has to be that when the Gemara says you have to be makabal b'simcha, simcha itself is a spectrum of how you express it. There is the simcha of dancing on the table and making a big suda, and then there's the simcha which coexists with a certain sadness, which I understand that even though this is a sad thing for me, there's an ultimate purpose and an ultimate good and an ultimate tayelas, and that can give me chizuk and simcha. Which means when the Gemara says, both for the taiv and for the ra, you have to be makabal the simcha, in both there is an emotion of simcha, but the expression of simcha is going to differ between the two. The Gemara does not mean you express and even feel the simcha in exactly the same way. One is the active simcha, and the other is the more quiet simcha of gamzu l'tayva, kol ma di avid rachamana l'tayva avid. And uh, as they say, because otherwise, uh, why have two yuschais, right? And why have hilchos avelas? So I think you have to redefine simcha as a spectrum of different types of emotional expressiveness. Okay, Robert, let's, let's go to the next live question you're on. Um, okay, thank you so much. I just wanted to ask one question. Um, throughout the Sefer, um, it seems like, I'm talking about the Sefer, Sefer Eov. So throughout the Sefer, it seems like there's a spotlight on Eov, specifically with his struggles. And the many most of the lessons that we learn come from how Eov responds and, you know, how a person should respond when they are in that situation of challenge i'm just wondering because so many times people i think we find ourselves in a situation that the challenge for us could be potentially watching another person um go through a challenge that they are you know the in the spotlight of that challenge and being a person that's close to them a person that loves them very much um not so much where can we get guidance as to how to support them or help them um, through that? But rather my question is, 
how can a person in that sidelines type of role, um, I guess, learn like how to make their own pain a purposeful, I guess, their own pain and their own cha that challenge of their own uh, purposeful. Um, can you hear me? Yeah, a purposeful experience and growth through that. Like yeah, on yeah. a personal level. You know, it, it, you know, your question is a very interesting one because the truth of the matter is, although you are correct that the bulk of Sefer Eov is dealing with Eov's suffering and how he responds to it, many have said that at least a secondary thing is, how do you be a good friend? How do you be a caregiver? How do you be a person who gives comfort? And when Hashem says at the end of the book that Eov's friends are wrong, that, that's really, you're right to and your friends are wrong. It doesn't just mean that they're wrong on the fact that they called him a sinner, but they're wrong that they did not uh, they did not do what caregivers and what friends are supposed to do. They did not show him compassion. They did not show him rachamim. They did not show him empathy. In many ways, you can look at the book of Eev as a manual as to how to be a friend and how to be a comforter when somebody you love and care about is going through a, a, a difficult time. Uh, in many, many ways, uh, to be a friend under these circumstances is very much of a daunting challenge. Uh, in some ways, uh, the pain that your loved one is suffering might even hurt you on some level even more uh, than it's hurting them because they might have coping strategies but you cannot bear them to suffer. An example would be, uh, God forbid, if somebody's child is suffering. The parent's agmas nefesh might even be worse than what the child himself is, is going through. Uh, but again, uh, I'll repeat what, what I said. Uh, the issue here is empathy. The issue is love. The issue is to communicate. The person is not alone, that you're with them. You will hold their hand through this journey just as Hashem is holding their hand uh, through this journey. And it's very, very hard because sometimes you will be depleted. You will be exhausted. You will be irritable. You will be angry. I remember seeing once on a PBS special, it was un unbelievable, but I, I, I understand it, in which um, a husband was very sick with cancer and he wasn't getting better. And his wife actually shook him in anger and said, why aren't you getting better? Quite amazing. Talk about blaming the victim. And yet, that's the way it is. So the caregivers, the loving friends, do have to sometimes take time for themselves to recharge their batteries. And that's why we sometimes need resources for caregivers or whatever it would be to take off. But ultimately, it's the empathy and the sense of not being alone that's going to be the biggest help that you can give to the people that are struggling. Okay, let's jump on this question, a tough question. I've been married for almost 10 years. My wife and I have not been zoichet to have children as of yet. The doctors seem to have a bleak outlook. I'm still trying to be happy from Tevim Shabbosim, but looking at the empty table, seeing all my friends and families living a meaningful life, it is almost impossible to have any simcha. I need some chizik and understanding this pain and suffering that was sent especially to me. Yeah, yeah. This is, this is of course, a very, very big source of Agma Stefesh for any married couple, and I think for religious, for Jewish religious people, it's even more so. We have the mitzvah of Pruervu and Yiddish and Nachas, 
even things like who will say Kaddish after me. These are things that uh, we think about. And you know, not having children can be a tremendous, tremendous pain. Uh, first of all, I want to point out, and I'm sure you're aware of this, but just to be sure, that there are wonderful Jewish organizations, uh, A Time in particular, which has a website, A Time, which deals with giving chizuk uh, as well as practical advice and medical advice regarding infertility uh, and, and, and the like. And by all means, if you kind of have other people that share this nisayon and share this challenge and share this difficulty, you can get chizik from each other. Sometimes, in fact, most times, people who don't have the difficulty are not necessarily able to give the same chizik as people who are going through this together. So if you haven't yet connected to a time, I would strongly uh, encourage you uh, to do so. Uh, the second issue is to consider things like adoption. Um, my own, my wife and I's own child is an adopted child, and I can tell you that uh, we love him indistinguishably uh, from a biological a child. But the third point to keep in mind is that you have to understand that the relationship of a husband and wife is a holy, sacred, kaddish relationship. It's not just as a means to have children. Yes, having children is very important. And it's a great blessing. But you have to know that you are building a place for the Shekhinah with your wife. That this is a relationship of holiness, a relationship of sanctity. The Akedas Yitzchak says, the Sefer Akedas Yitzchak says, that when Yaakov was angry at Rachel, remember Rachel said to Yaakov, uh, if I don't have children, I want to die. So Yaakov said, Oh, am I in place of Hashem who didn't give you kids? Which is a very, very harsh remark. I have kids, it's you that have the problem. So the Medra says, is this how you answer a woman in distress? It's a big passion. But the Akedas Yitzchak says that what is getting Yaakov upset is his love for Rachel. Because if Rachel says without children, I might as well die, she's saying there is no purpose in our relationship except children. Well, what about us? What about husband and wife? So in some ways, I don't want to call, say it's a gift. I mean, it, everything is a gift. But I understand for me to tell you that would, would not sound right. But in some ways, this is a chance to develop a closeness, an intimacy, a, a relationship that might be even deeper and deeper and deeper. So everything has its brachos, right? And children are tremendous brachos. And this can be a bracha in terms of the closeness that you create. And as I say, by all means, try to consider adoption uh, or even financially to support uh, children in, in, for their chinuch, to pay for their education. Chazal say, you're megadol, you're megadol a person, an orphan. It's as if you gave birth to them. You're megadol a person to teach them taira. It's as if you gave birth to them. So there are many, many ways in which you can still be a father. And remember the Haftarah that we read, the Mincha of every Tainas Sibor. We read it, we read it, Shavas Herbatamas, we're going to read it, the Mincha of Tishuba. The Saris, the one without children, says, I am an Eitz Yavesh, I am like a dry tree. And Hashem speaks to the Sarisim who don't have children. And he says, 
I will give you a Yad Vashem. I will give you a thing to hold on to. Tov mi banim will be my It's a pasuk. Better than sons and daughters. Because you will be a servant of Hashem. And your mitzvahs will be your sons and your daughters. That will be there for you when you go to Olam Abba. So this is a very, very difficult Messiah. And Be'ezras Hashem, may you and your wife be blessed with many healthy children. But at the same time, look at your life even now as a bracha, because there's much in it that's blessed. There are so many people who don't have shiduchim, they don't have a spouse. Bracha Hashem, you have a wife, you have a place where the shekhinah comes in, and be cognizant of that and cherish it and appreciate it. Fair about it. Somebody have one more live question. The person is going to let me know, but I want to. I want my last question. I'm going to ask for tonight. I'm because a lot of people texted similar questions. I'm going to try to encompass it, and then we'll go to closing. Is that okay? Yeah. Okay. So I'm going to ask the question, but I'm going to throw in all the people that are texting me. People are texting me. How do we understand the Shem when there's children are molested? How do we understand the Shem when the Holocaust and all these questions? But the question I'm going to put it all together is how do we understand all the tragedies in the world that we've been going through? You see all these terrible disasters, whether it's Surfside, Moran, children dying, children being molested, children, people not, you know, all these different stars. How do I, how should I cope with such tragedies? And it really affects my moon and Hashem. What can I do to be machazic myself when I deal with these unbelievable difficult, you know, types of questions? Yeah, yeah. You know, once again, as, as I said at the very beginning of my remarks, uh, on an emotional level, it's going to be very hard to give an answer that will satisfy us. Let me mention another point which I did not bring out earlier. That is, Hashem did create a world of Bechira. Hashem gave human beings the ability to choose good and choose evil. And as the Rambam writes, if we were predetermined to be righteous or evil, then how could God hold us accountable for evil? And why should we deserve reward for righteousness for just computers that are programmed to act a certain way? So the whole predicate of accountability as well as reward is based on Bechira. Now the problem is when you create a world based on Bechira, that does mean that human beings can choose to do evil because you can't have a Bechira world where the only choice you can do is choose good because that wouldn't be Bechira. That would be like the old elections in the Soviet Union, where there's only one candidate uh, on the ballot, and he always won by a landslide. Uh, that's, not, that's not a choice. So in a sense, if you accept the idea, and this again, this is kind of different than things I was saying before, <coughs> that goodness can exist only when there's a capacity to choose evil, then in some ways, evil is a necessary evil for there to be good. So if you think about it, in a lot of the examples that you gave, we're not dealing with cancer, tsunamis. We're not dealing with acts of God. We're dealing with volitional bechira done by people who made choices to do evil. So even with the Holocaust, you know, instead of saying, oh, the Holocaust meant God, you know, killed six million Jews, is it God that directly did it, or did God enable human beings to make choices? Meaning, the Rambam suggests at one point that evil that is predicated on human choice is not really God's issue at all. God allows Bechira because in the long run, Bechira facilitates optimal good. In the short run, 
Bechira will allow many, many destructive and evil acts. Now, again, uh, this is a big, big machlokas between the Orachayim and the Chayvah Salavavas, and even the Orachayim, there are many interpretations. The Orachayim actually does say that the power of Bechira can override God's decree. Because God made a world in which Bechira can harm even innocent, undeserving people, because that's the fallout of human Bechira. The Chayvah Salavavas says no. Chayvah Salavavas says nothing happens to a person unless God specifically decreed it. And some consider this Arachayim even heretical, <laughs> even though the Arachayim uh, says it and the like. But the point is, in, in my long-winded way, part of what I'm saying is that sometimes we do have to differentiate between tragedies that happen and tragedies that happen because of human volitional Bechira, because that is the world of Bechira. In fact, many have said that the Holocaust tells us much more about human beings' capacity than it does about God. Instead of asking, where was God at Auschwitz? We could ask, where was man at Auschwitz? What does it tell me about human beings? Beautiful, all right. Okay. All the people that are waiting to ask a lot of questions, I'm gonna, we're going to end now. Right away, it's much going to come back again. Your session, thank you. Okay, so we're going to go to closing, and the Ramanachim will go, then you'll go. Let me just wrap it up quickly. Again, Brad was waking up 4.20 in the morning and really giving us over two hours of time, and it was and it was really, really powerful tonight. Uh, there was over 1,200, people here tonight. The Metshem, thousands and thousands will listen to it later. And again, everybody should know Brad has a weekly Q&A where he asks, 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 is asked anything from A to Aleph to Mizdaf. So... Um, Please listen to his podcast. It's, uh, you can probably search it. Menachem will put in the email with the links. Um, again, tonight's show was sponsored by Moistis Hattori of the Linden. They're doing a raffle this week for, uh, for a house in Linden, New Jersey. They're building a, be a new beautiful Jewish community. So please try to help to build them up. It's Tzedakah and uh, they're selling raffle tickets and you can win a beautiful house. You can be part of the neighborhood. Uh, Menachem, you could post on the link, the, the, the link for, the, for the raffle and Menachem also email it out. And please try to um, be mechazik, uh, this, this new Jewish community. Again, thank you, everybody, for coming on. At the end, we'll go get back to the gematria. Like, Echad, Hashem is one, right? Kavi, I've been and I think after tonight's share, the attack of Mechazik was, was unbelievable, Rabbi Breitowitz. It was really, really unbelievable. Again, if anybody wants to get the, 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 the flyers every Sunday, please WhatsApp me at 848 525 0066. You can go to menachembernfeld.com. Everybody wants to know where the where this share is going to be listened. You can hear it later. It's going to be on YouTube. It's going to be on Spotify. It's going to be an Apple podcast. It's going to be on Kalalashan. It's going to be on our phone number. I'll say it in a minute. And make sure I'll send it to Rabbi Breitowitz. We'll put it on tour anytime. We'll send it around. And uh, please listen to it. Uh, anytime you feel down, just listen to it again and again. Again, if anybody's here the first time, every Sunday night at 9.30 on this Zoom ID, unbelievable shiurim and different abonim, therapists, different topics. Next Sunday, like I said in the beginning, either way, there'll be no, the no shir, whether Mashiach comes and we're not going to be available. Or it'll be Tisha B'Av, so we won't be available. So the next show will be August 14th for Rabbi Kaplan from Israel. Also, from our Sameach, the topic will be my husband, my king, my wife, my queen, taking our marriages to the next level. I think uh, we all could use always Chizik and Shalom Bayas, so please join. It should be unbelievable. We wrote many, many books on Shalom Bayas for Abdullah Kaplan. Everything is recorded, Mitzchem. We'll be on menachembernfeld.com. If anybody has any questions, please email coachmenachem at gmail.com. We'll send everything to Rabbi Breidowitz. If anybody has any questions, Rabbi Breidowitz can answer when he has time. Again, tonight's share is 111. It will be recorded if you want to listen to it on the phone. The number is 848. 777 grow that's 848 777 grow and uh thank you to all the advertising sponsors like with scoop rabbi and chazik 
Rabbi Enya Nuf from Chazak, Elian Ariel from Five Town Central, and Chayla Kaufman Shmuel Summer from JC and the Jewish Content Network. Again, Rabbi Ariel, so I just want to give you a good shot for coming on. And we're going to go to closing now first with Menachem. Rabbi Ariel, just before you go, give us a good takeaway. We wrap up the, tonight's chizik with so many people. But Coach Menachem, you go first. So first, I want to thank you, Rabbi Radowitz, for the physic for Hashem. And um, I do want to mention that when people go through you know, whatever challenge they're going through, whether it's big or small, like we mentioned many times, when you're in your challenge, it's real. And uh, it's a challenge. And sometimes it's hard to hear what we're discussing. But especially by us, us humans, we want to see change, we want to grow, we want to be out of that place of discomfort. We, we, it's a place you're sitting where you don't like, you don't enjoy it, you want, to, you want to make sense out of it. It just doesn't make sense. And to sit in such a place is just not made for us. And we, tr we try to run and fix and um, figure out. So yes, we did learn some skills which are help, but ultimately, like we heard last week from Rabbi Suley Fried, he mentioned many times, there's nothing you can do to change it. You're in a situation where it is what it is and there's really nothing you can do. And he mentioned as, as a friend or a, a family member, the only thing you can do is to be there for them. Don't turn your back, just be there. There's nothing you can say. And that sometimes even the person itself going through depression or sitting in that place thinking that, Life is just not working for me. It's not working. This is not where I want to be. So that itself, you want to get out of your, you're not happy, you can't sit there. That itself can cause more anxiety. I want to get out of here. But to be able to sit with yourself and understand, like we heard tonight, it's the challenge and it's, a, it's an assignment. And it doesn't mean you have to get out. It means you be there and do whatever you can. And it's, it's a slow process. It takes time. And many times it's, it's Kabidiye Tahara. If you feel discouraged, saying, okay, it's not working, it's over. And the Yetzirah just wants you to stop. That's it. So all you have to tell yourself is, listen, I don't like where I am. I am discouraged, but I'll do whatever I can. And if I, it's very minimum, very small, small steps, that's it. I'm not trying to get out of it, but I'm not giving up. All the Yetzirah wants is, to give up, say it's over, I can't continue. So thank you very much, Rabbi Breitowitz, for giving us the physic. And in Mitzvah Shem, we should be able to get out of whoever we are, everybody in their challenge, whether it's big or small. And with that, with that we shall discuss, we should be Zoyche in Mitzvah Shem. So the Geula Shalema, the Mheder Yemenu. Rabbi one second. Two, two questions before the closing. I have two questions for you, okay? Number one, what do you say when so many hundreds of people, thousands of people come together on every Sunday night to get chizik? What does that say to Hashem and Shemayim? Well, first of all, uh, the Rebani Shalaylam gets tremendous, tremendous nachas from Yidin, who, in fact, there's a Medrash Eicha, which we're going to read, some people will read on Tijabah, that says, when the Geula Shlema finally comes, Hashem will look at Am Yisrael and look at all that we've suffered as a nation and all that we've gone through as individuals. And Hashem is going to say, I don't know how they did it. I don't know how they did it. So the fact that people, and many of you I know, I seem to be struggling with, with issues. These are not just academic questions. 
the fact that you care enough and you're miming enough to try to get chizuk, to try to get better, to try to work this out, to try to walk forward, as difficult as it is, HaKadosh Baruch Hu gets tremendous nachas and pride from all of your struggles. And you need to know that he's crying with you. He's weeping with you in your suffering. Imo anochi patsara. Right, a second, a second request, and then you can go to closing to wrap it up. You give everybody a bracha here tonight that we should get the chizik that we need to go through the challenge that we're going through. Again, birchas uh, I, I I hope that all of you will find an inner joy in your life and appreciation in your life. Feel the presence of Hashem even in your difficulties. May you see the light even in the darkness. Desire calls the black light, and may that black light become a shining, radiant light that you'll be able to go forward. Amen. Brad, just want to give a closing? Yeah, uh, I'd like to, to end with a, a, a little story. Uh, those of you that uh, are in the music world may have heard of a great, very gifted classical pianist, Leon Fleischer. Again, a Jewish man, although not an observant one. And uh, he was a very, very famous pianist in the 50s and 60s and 70s. And then somehow in the 1970s, because he was so obsessively practicing, he had very serious carpal tunnel syndrome that could not be addressed. And as a result, he had to give up playing piano professionally. Now you might look at that as a minor thing, but for him, music was his life. And he literally was on the verge of suicide. He, he wanted to kill himself. But eventually he redefined his life and he became a very gifted teacher of piano. So although he couldn't play, he could instruct people how to play, and a whole generation of pianists were his tamidim. I, I happened to meet some people who became Bali Chuba, who were protégés of Leon Fleischer. After being a very successful teacher for 25 years, his wife had read that there was some new treatment in Japan, some deep tissue massage that could uh, give her restoration of function. She wanted her husband to try it. He didn't want to do it because he said, you know, I've gotten used to being a teacher. If you're going to give me hope that I could play again and it doesn't work, I'm going to be so tzibrach and I might commit suicide. I don't even want to try it. But she pushed him and he tried it. And lo and behold, it worked. And he was able to play for five more years. Eventually he came back with five years of playing. And because he was a teacher for all those years, uh, he was able to play at a very high level. Now, that's a nice story, but the reason I'm sharing the story is he gave a little musr shmus at the end. And he said, why did God take away my talent for 25 years? He said, because when I was the, you know, the best pianist in the world, my life was about me. It was about my ego, my cover, my honor. God wanted me to learn to care about others. God wanted me to learn to reach out to others, to be less egotistical. So he took away my talent and he forced me to care about others, that their successes I cherished more than my successes. And their failures hurt me more than my failures. And I changed and I became a person who cared about others. And then Hashem said, you learned your lesson, I'll give you your talent back. I took it away for a reason, and you'll get it back. Now, this is a neat ending, although it took 25 years. We don't always see that ending. But I think the idea of 
self-transformation is fundamental in this area. You know, David Melech says in Mizmor Chav Gimel, Shiftecha Mishantecha Hema Yenachamuni Your stick and your staff, speaking to Hashem, they give me comfort. What is the difference between a stick and a staff? So it is said in the Mephorshim, a stick is what you get hit with. And a staff is what supports you as you're limping. Sometimes Hashem gives us a stick. And sometimes he gives us a staff. But David HaMelech says, as long as I know it's from Hashem, I know it's good and it'll give me comfort. Even the Shevet will give me comfort when I know it's from you because it's for my good. And finally, the famous Pasuk, which is word from the Baal Shem Tov. I declare your loving kindness in the morning. And your faithfulness at night. The Baal Shem Tov says, day and night refers to different parts of our lives. There are parts of our lives that are daytime, joyous, happy, bright, full of light. And then I can see the loving kindness of God. In the boker of my life, but then there are moments in life which are dark, hopeless, full of despair. It's hard for me to see the chesed of my faith in you will sustain me even in the dark moments. So my bracha is that all of you should have that emunah in the dark moments, but ultimately Hashem should take you from the dark moments to the boker in which all of us will feel the chesed of HaKadosh Baruch Amen. Amen. Beautiful Rabbi Rabbi Ratzagana Thank you all for coming. Have an easy Tisha B'Av. We'll see you in Eretz Yisrael. If not, August 14th, we'll go to Kaplan. Hi, it's Coach Menachem here. If you enjoyed, please consider supporting us with a small monthly, monthly donation to help sustain the future episodes. And it will be greatly appreciated. Thank you in advance.